Hello, my friends, and welcome again to the Bible Lab, the podcast where we explore major themes from every book of the Bible in order to see how each page points us to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. I'm your host, Andy Wood. Thank you for joining me. Friends, this is going to be a different kind of episode of the Bible Lab. We are nominally in the second part of a two-part series examining the book of Philemon, but this episode is not going to be really looking at the book of Philemon. We're going to be looking at slavery in the Bible. Now, this is obviously a very contentious issue. It has been for thousands of years. It will be until Jesus comes back. I don't want to pretend like I'm going to completely solve this riddle. I'm going to explain this perfectly so you'll have no questions in this 15 to 20 minute episode. But I do want to bring our attention to kind of move past the noise of our whatever debate we might be in the middle of. And I want us to ask the question, what does the Bible say about slavery? So we're going to keep as much as possible to the text of Scripture, slavery and the Bible. Another departure from our norm in this particular episode, listeners of the Bible app know that the resource I make use of in almost every single episode is the great book, What the New Testament Authors Really Cared About. And today I'm actually going to be using a different book. And it's a book by John Frame, and it's called The Doctrine of the Christian Life. And so this material I'm adapting from Dr. Frame's book. It's an excellent book. I encourage you to read that. Uh, it's an amazing ethics book, incredibly in-depth. And one of the issues that he tackles is slavery in the Bible. So let's dive in. So first, let's begin with the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, there are two forms of slavery mentioned. There are slavery of foreigners and slavery of Israelites. After we talk about those two types of slavery in the Old Testament, we're going to consider the form of slavery that existed during the writing of the New Testament, Greco-Roman slavery. And finally, we'll look at the American form of slavery and how Scripture speaks to that. So first, let's look at foreign slaves in the Old Testament. I don't want to bury the lead. God authorized the Israelites, the nation of Israel, the family of Abraham, to take slaves from conquered cities outside of Canaan. So Deuteronomy 20, 10 through 11 says, When you draw near to a city to fight against it, offer terms of peace to it. And if it responds to you peaceably and it opens to you, then all the people who are found in it shall do forced labor for you and shall serve you. Now this slavery would be for life unless the slave escaped, the slave purchased their liberty, or the slave was freed by their owner. Now in a manner of speaking, this form of slavery was a mercy. For conquered cities within the promised land, slavery wasn't an option. Deuteronomy 20.16 said, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall leave alive nothing that breathes. So for the people of Canaan, God had given them hundreds of years to repent. They had refused. And so judgment was coming on them in the form of the nation of Israel. But for those people outside the land of Canaan, Slavery was offered as a mercy. God also permitted Israel to buy slaves from the nations around them and from foreigners who lived in Israel. So Leviticus 25, 44-46 says, As for your male and female slaves, whom you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and, that, and they may be your property." You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. So this is also a permanent form of slavery. 
Now, slaves in the Old Testament, we're talking about foreign slaves, they fell under the general provisions in the law requiring Israelites to show kindness. So, for example, slaves receive rest. In the fourth commandment regarding the Sabbath, we read these words. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. So everyone gets a day off on the Sabbath day, including foreign-born slaves. Israelites were reminded of their former slavery in Egypt and thus commanded to be kind to slaves. Deuteronomy 15, 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command this to you today. And the command is to be kind. Israelites weren't to return runaway slaves to their masters. Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16, you shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst in the place he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him. You shall not wrong him. Slaves were to be freed if they were beaten by their master. Exodus 21, 26 through 27. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. Now, I don't think we're making a stretch at all to say that slavery of foreigners was intended to be redemptive. As Gentiles came under Israelite authority and enjoyed their kindness and their mercy, they would inevitably turn and worship Yahweh. This was God's design. Remember, friends, God works with the world as he finds it. A great parallel for you to think of is divorce. God created marriage to be lifelong. But he knows that in this fallen world, there are times when divorce It's never to be celebrated, but divorce is to be allowed. So God gives laws regulating divorce, not because he likes it, because he loves it, but because he knows that in a fallen world, he needs to provide protection. He needs to provide boundaries and guidelines for the vulnerable. And in the same way, while it might make us flinch when we hear God commanding slavery, understand that God does not love slavery. You think about in the Garden of Eden before the entrance of sin, there's no slavery. You think about after the return of Christ in the new creation, there's no slavery. Slavery is not a part part of God's good and original design, but in this fallen world, it's going to happen. And so God gives commands to regulate slavery to protect the vulnerable. Now, whether or not Israel did or did not obey these commands regarding foreign slaves, and we know they didn't, all of these commands were given to the nation of Israel. This was the only nation that God was in a special covenant relationship with. And since that nation no longer exists in that covenant form, there is a nation of Israel today, but it's not the ancient nation of Israel. They're not in a covenant with Yahweh. No nation has the God-given right to take slaves. And there is nothing that would forbid Christians from working for the abolition of slavery. And as we're going to see in just a moment, there is much to encourage us towards working towards that end. So that's Old Testament slavery of foreigners. What about Old Testament slavery of Israelites? Well, Exodus 21, 1 through 11, and Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18 give us some guidelines. So here's Exodus 21. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. 
If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be your masters and he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost. And his master shall bore his ear through with an owl and he shall be his slave forever. When a man sells his daughter as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. If he designates her for his son, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. If he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food or clothing or her marital rights. And if he does not do these things for her, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. And then Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 18. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you because he loves you in your household since he is well off with you, then you shall take an owl and put it through his ear into the door and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave, you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you when you let him go free from you for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. Now, there are some differences obviously between this form of slavery and the slavery of foreigners. Right? Leviticus 25, 39 through 40 says, if, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells, him to, and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and a sojourner. So there's a, a difference in treatment. There's a difference in consideration. There's obviously a difference in length. This is to be for seven years or lifetime, but that has to be voluntarily. Nevertheless, despite the differences, this relationship begins with the sale of one person to another. A person could either sell themselves or they could be sold by someone that they had already sold themselves to within the nation of Israel. So if I own Bob, I can sell him to Joe, provided Joe is an Israelite, but I can't sell Bob to someone outside the nation of Israel. A person could sell themselves to buy a debt or because they become too poor to support themselves or their family. Right, so that Leviticus 25, 39, we just read it. It says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you. The point being made by the above verse, however, is that the slavery of an Israelite should be closer to that of a hired servant than a foreign slave. Like we said, this type of slavery has a termination. He shall serve six years, and in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. The slave is to be released in the seventh year of his service or during the year of Jubilee, which would happen every 50 years, whichever came first. So either seven years or the year of Jubilee, if the year of Jubilee happened in the you know second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth year of your slavery. The slave is to be set free and he is to be blessed as he goes out. If you remember the story of the Exodus, God says to Moses that the people of Egypt will shower you with gifts. You will plunder the Egyptians as you go out into freedom. And so you can see a principle here of escalation. If if the Egyptians gave the Hebrews gifts as they went out from slavery, how much more generous should a Hebrew be to a fellow Hebrew as he leaves slavery and goes back into freedom? Right? They don't go out empty-handed. They are to gift 
liberally, generously from the flock, the threshing floor, and the wine press. These gifts, hopefully, would help establish the freed slave in a new trade. They're now debt-free and they are blessed with a financial gift to get themselves a fresh start. The emphasis here is that the Israelite who has been enslaved has fallen on hard times. And whether or not the hard times are his fault or not is not the issue. A Hebrew man could become poor because he was lazy, or a Hebrew man could become poor because there was famine or drought and his crops failed for five or six years in a row and he's near starvation. It's not his fault. That's not the issue though. The issue is God has given a mechanism by which a Hebrew can be forgiven his debt and restarted on a path towards prosperity. The purchasing Hebrew is to treat his brother or sister with kindness and help them get back on their feet. In this institution, there's no division of families. If a man comes in with a wife, she goes out with him. And if the man marries a woman who is a Hebrew slave, she has to serve her term before being released, but she's going to be released too. So if I am sold into debt slavery, and while in debt slavery, I meet a woman who is in the fifth year of her term, and we get married, well, she gets freed two years later, but I still have several years to go. So I don't get to leave just because she does. Either I have to remain in slavery while she's free until my seven years are done, or she has to voluntarily choose to stay with me. But at any point, the family is not split up. The family is not split up. And this form of slavery is a net positive for society, and it was intended to remediate poverty and provide a fresh start for life. The goal of Hebrew slavery is freedom and prosperity. Now, despite the benefits of this particular institution, just like the first form of slavery, it's a covenantal institution. It's an institution for the nation of Israel. This is not something that new covenant believers have a license to do. But this doesn't mean that this form of slavery was bad, quite the opposite. And we might ponder the wisdom of God. And we might think about how much more effectively this form of slavery dealt with poverty than all of our current solutions deal with poverty. Now again, Jesus said that we will always have the poor with us. So there is no cure-all for poverty. But we might think about the wisdom of our God in giving us this type of institution. Now, the third form of slavery we want to think about is Greco-Roman slavery. Like the first form of slavery, the slavery of non-Israelite people, many of these types of slaves became slaves through war. Many had become slaves through poverty. Parents who couldn't raise their children would sell them into slavery, and a child born into slavery was also a slave. Their duties varied in the Roman Empire, but they were more often to be found working in cities, in houses or laborers at various shops than in the fields. Slaves could purchase their freedom or their masters could decide to free them as a reward. However, masters did have complete power over life and death with their slaves, and many slaves were abused physically and sexually. And I only point that out, friends, because you will often hear people when they talk about slavery in the Bible, particularly American slavery in the Bible, Uh, and they get to the fact that when Paul writes to slave owners, he never commands them to free their slaves, they'll talk about Greco-Roman slavery as if it was, you know, not that bad. And in some ways, yeah, it was better than American slavery, but we're still talking about an institution where slave owners could have their slaves crucified for any number of things, where slaves were considered to be the property, body, and soul of their masters, and many slaves 
were abused sexually, even very young children. So this was not some Greco-Roman paradise. This was a brutal institution. Now, how does the New Testament speak to slaves and slave owners? Well, first, Paul commands slaves to obey their masters sincerely. Ephesians 6, 5-8, bond servants, slaves, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with the good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or is free. And friends, that's not a one-off from Paul. It's not just slaves in Ephesus who need to obey. This is a constant theme of his writings. The apostle Peter adds that slaves are to be subject to their masters even when they are cruel. 1 Peter 2.18, servants be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. This fits in with Peter's larger discussion that this command to slaves is not just sort of floating around there in isolation. It's a part of Peter's larger discussion in 1 Peter of enduring unjust suffering for the sake of Christ. And so Peter uses Christ's sufferings as the model for slaves. In 1 Peter 2, 21-25, Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now Peter and Paul accept the institution of slavery as it is, and they do not encourage rebellion. Paul urges contentment from all Christians, including slaves, but he does add, add this in 1 Corinthians 7.21. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Were you a slave when you became a Christian? Don't be concerned about it. But then he adds, almost as an aside, but if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. So that's what he commands slaves. Paul also commands masters. Philemon 16. Philemon, the man who is receiving this letter, is to treat Onesimus, his runaway slave, Paul says, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. According to Paul, according to the entire New Testament, Christian brotherhood transcends the institution of slavery. And Paul's commands implicitly undermine slavery. Listen to what he says to masters in Ephesians 6, 7 through 9. I'll just read verse 9. Masters, do the same to them. So treat your slaves kindly and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. So masters are to serve their slaves sincerely and not threaten them. Do you, do you see this inversion? Yes, slaves, serve your masters gladly, but masters, serve your slaves gladly. And oh yeah, masters, don't threaten them with physical punishment. One of the only things that keeps a slave from running away is the threat of physical punishment. Slavery without the threat of physical punishment, slavery where the master is serving the slave sincerely from the heart, isn't going to last long. The overall thrust of the New Testament, it's towards the abolition of slavery. Christians didn't carry on a political campaign to end slavery 
because that wasn't their main goal. Right? Understand, friends, the main goal of all of the writers of the New Testament, of God speaking through the New Testament, was to reconcile individual believers and thus the society they were a part of to God through faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. The ending of slavery was not their primary goal, but it was downstream from their primary goal. But another thing, a practical consideration, even if the abolition of slavery had been the primary goal of the early Christian church, they would not have been able to accomplish it at that point. Right? The early Christian church was made up of a few thousand, maybe a few tens of thousands of believers scattered amongst the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire, friends, had tens of millions of slaves. The entire Roman Empire was built on slavery. If the early Christians had made one of the central tenets of their faith, the abolition of slavery, they would have been destroyed to the last man. No, the goal of the Christian church, the primary goal of the Christian church was to proclaim Christ and the implications of following Christ, which, sure enough, led to the abolition of slavery. And this brings us to the fourth and final form of slavery, perhaps the one that at least my American audience is most concerned with, and that's American slavery. Now, in this form of slavery, slaves came almost entirely from kidnapping, not from war or poverty. No one was selling themselves into American race-based slavery. Almost none of these slaves were taken through war, at least by their American owners. They might have been taken by war back in Africa and then sold to Americans. But this form of slavery came almost entirely from kidnapping. The lot of slaves in this system, I think it's fair to say, was more degrading than in any of the other three forms we've discussed. Families were constantly broken. Education was forbidden. I mean, even in Greco-Roman slavery, it was actually good to have educated slaves. Slaves were often teachers. They were perhaps doctors. Like, it was good to have educated slaves to help do that work of the house, but not in American slavery. Education was forbidden. Slavery was for life, and slavery lasted throughout the generations. Furthermore, this institution was based on an unbiblical racist theory, namely that God had made black people, had made African people to be slaves, and that Africans were only suited to that type of labor. Christians tried to defend this form of slavery, but Scripture clearly condemns it. Exodus 21, 16, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone is found in possession of him, shall be put to death. So if you steal a man and you sell him, you and the purchaser are guilty of sin. So that's Exodus. Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, 7, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers, the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And you might think, well, that's that's Old Testament. What about, what about New Testament? Well, when Paul is listing in 1 Timothy the sins that disqualify you from the kingdom of heaven, one of the actions, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, he says, enslavers. Man, the word literally translated is man-stealers. So man-stealers, those who take people into captivity and sell them, and people who purchase people that they know have been kidnapped, are sinning greatly before the Lord. And it's even worse than that. Because many slaves, many slaves in the American system became Christians. 
But masters did not treat them as brothers in Christ. They didn't obey the commands of Paul. They didn't serve their brothers and sisters. They didn't love their brothers and sisters. They beat their slaves. They sexually abused their slaves. They threatened their slaves. They did not treat them with respect. Worship was segregated. This institution, American slavery, was not put in place by God, and we should be thankful for its eradication. But let's not forget that it's an eradication that came when Christians began to live out the implication of the gospel. And we should thank God for their faithfulness, for their long faithfulness towards abolition of slavery. Friends, there's obviously much more that we could say, but I wanted us to hear what Scripture says about slavery. When we come back together next time, Lord willing, we're going to begin an examination of the book of Revelation. But for now, my friends, take up and read. God bless.